0: Hi, I'm Namusa. And I'm at Adana. And this is the Africana Podcast. Nah, no, I don't know uh, what our words really are. It's okay. We'll make them up. We'll make them up. No one knows what we
1: are saying, but it's
0: right. Hello, listeners. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us once more. We have a very special guest, someone that I know from my work world, so I'm excited to have this conversation. With us today for this episode, we have Andia Chakaba. She has more than 17 years experience in fund management and six years experience of driving women empowerment, economic empowerment goals. She is a global thought leader in gender lens investing and is one of the first female fund managers in the region. And she's been instrumental in the setup of two fund management companies from scratch in Kenya where she served in each as a managing director. She was also the lead consultant and co-author of a 2017 research report published by the grasse Michelle Trust called Growth Barriers Affecting on Female Entrepreneurs in East Africa. And she is currently leading the conceptual and founding team to create a gender lens investment vehicle for Africa. And if you have no idea what gender lens investing is, this episode is about to tell you. So welcome, Andia. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you. Hello. So, India, yeah, I have the um, wonderful honor of um, asking you the first question. So, and this is uh, just a follow-up from Adidana's intro. But could you tell our listeners about what you do and why it's important?
2: Oh, thank you, Namusa. So, I am an Africa gender lens investor, and uh, to me, a lot of investing has been happening. In the African continent, I I would say uh, predominantly a lot of focus on infrastructure, predominantly a lot of focus on listed securities. So these are companies that have been listed on the stock exchange. They're usually quite, quite large. But when we talk about gender investing, we're really talking about how we can use finance as a tool for social and economic change. We're talking about uh, being able to deploy capital in search of better outcomes for women and girls. So it really is incorporating gender analysis within the financial analysis process and determining how gender is going to inform how and what we value and how the balance of power, how power is balanced when making investment decisions, therefore determining how we invest. And uh, I think that's a, a, an important distinction because there are people that have been investing in the continent, but have been using gender as a post-investment outcome. How many jobs we created and in all those jobs that we created, how many of them were amongst women? But in this case, you're deliberately starting out looking for gender in the beginning from a deal sourcing perspective, integrated within due diligence with the sole purpose of basically uplifting a gendered impact outcome. So it is not only just about women entrepreneurs who are, we have chosen to really make the focal point of driving out SDG 5, which is gender equality for all, but the business ecosystem as a whole.
1: Keep going. I was i was getting too excited. I was saying that's super helpful to understand in terms of my question was going to be kind of what does gender mean for our listeners? But I think you've you've aptly pointed out that, yeah, look like having gender earlier on, as opposed to asking the question later of how many uh, women have Kind of receive jobs out of those investments, but having gender as a, a crucial kind of like guiding piece from the beginning. So go for it. Sorry, I cut you off.
2: Yeah. So, and I wanted to say, because you also asked, why did, uh, why do we do it? And I have to say that when you're in the investment process, there is gender when it comes to even the fundraising process, when you're talking about where the money is coming from, there's actual gender when you're developing your investment thesis. And at which point it lies in the investment thesis, there is gender when it comes out in terms of the impact outcomes and what you're trying to force uh, within the impact outcomes. And there's gender in the portfolio management in terms of who is managing this portfolio. So I just wanted to say it's not one particular tick box. It's a series of events where you deliberately actually integrate and de- uh, ad- ad- deliberately integrate gender in a very intentional manner. Now, why do I do this? I think I've had the benefit of being, should I say, a female investment professional in a male dominated field without actually recognizing how gender was playing a very big role in how basically. How far I could go within my particular career, the network that I have to build in order to fulfill some of the objectives, the ability to have that disability that you could actually go out and fundraise because not many women are associated as managing partners. There might be a lot of women on the investment analyst level. And in turn, that actually influence who then got funded. Because if investment is a function of relationship. It's also a function of a- appreciation of value. It is a function of incoming sectors and incoming innovations that are then given the opportunity to grow. And in order to identify them, you have to be rooted within the particular ecosystem. And then it's a function of supporting those particular businesses to reach their objectives. And I recognized that if that was not done by, I I was like, who else could do this better than me? Because I had had the experience of being passive, whereas it was not done. It was not done deliberately and intentionally on my part. But I also came from a very strong background and network of a lot of of women in the ecosystem because I was running and I still continue to run the Women in Finance Network in Kenya. And we were doing a lot of training with women in business already about investor readiness, about bankability. And I recognized that when I did put this sort of investment thesis forward to other colleagues, they said, nah, who does that? That sucks. Why would we do that? There isn't a problem. And who said there's, there's an opportunity there? And, and that's why I'm so glad that, you know, the promoter for this initiative is actually the Grasham Michelle Trust, which is almost sort of an unlikely promoter. It should be out of a financial institution. But because of the depth and the belief of already interacting with the female segment for so long, to me, it was a no-brainer. So, yes, that's why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I don't think anybody else would do it. You can't see me right now, India,
1: but I am nodding aggressively. Addie, I think you have the next question. I sure do.
0: So that's a really good background to why what you do is important and kind of setting the scene for how investment decisions are currently made. And now what I'd like to do is offer our listeners a bit more context in terms of numbers. So what are the statistics that you can share with our audience? What is the current state of investment in women entrepreneurs in Africa at the moment?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I just want to say that these numbers, I I don't know if I want to say that they are up to date, so they're right, but I'll share some areas I feel are are important. One of the key things that's that's factual, and I'll start off with sort of a global context and I'll come to an Africa context, is that women businesses are smaller. They're smaller than male-owned enterprises. Now, there could be a variety of reasons for this. So basically, women businesses are making up about a third of the very small businesses, a third of the, the small business segment, and uh, only about less than 20 percent when you talk about medium enterprises and become, you know, single digit when you're talking about large enterprises. Uh, and this is global. And we don't know if it's because women businesses are mainly informal. Uh, they're also happening in addition to other responsibilities that women may have as they're raising a family. It's also when you look at the global entrepreneurship monitor, they talk about a preference for, for women businesses running B2C. And you find that some of the businesses that have the highest margins are B2B. B. And then you also have some of uh, some of the sectors where you have a lot of the highest margins being male dominated. So they're smaller across the board. I think when we also now look at, um, at just global, when we look at the Global Banking Alliance and we see... Uh, women represent about 36% of total banking customers worldwide. And this is if you take US, you're taking Australia, uh, you're taking India, you're taking uh, parts of Africa. That's what the Global Banking Alliance has. But when you look at now, you start segmenting and you start saying, what is women's share of the total credit portfolio? You'll find that of the loans given, and this is banks, not microfinance, women make up 18% of the total credit portfolio. When you go to business banking, it is even less. It is like you're going to single digit numbers. Then you start looking at loan approval rates. Loan approval rates for women are basically 20% lower than that of men. Their loan sizes are also 58% smaller. We're not factoring in what women are asking. We're just factoring what's in the book. When we look at venture capital globally, we've got about 2.2% uh, going to women entrepreneurs with only about 9.9% of that being deployed to women in emerging markets. And that figure has to be corrected if you remove out, you know, Southeast Asia, Latin America for Africa. So at the end of the day, we have this disparity where we're saying, and and let's look at who's making the capital allocation decisions. Across the banking sector, probably 24%, the banking sector have got women in senior positions in terms of 8% in the private equity industry in emerging markets. But but when you look at people that are graduating from university, it's 50-50. When you look at who's in charge of global two-thirds, uh, who's in charge of spending, consumer spending, you've got, it's women predominantly in charge of two-thirds of consumer spending. So what we have here is that we have a huge credit financing gap which is really estimated to be something like $5.2 trillion, a gap of $5.2 trillion when you look at all of that. In Africa, I think it gets excavated by really what people request from women if you're seeking capital, mainly people wanting some form of, of collateral, which women don't necessarily have. Or if you're getting loans, you have to have a high level of cash flow. So it leaves a gap on patient capital. The alternative funders that we have it in the market are not that many, have not necessarily made themselves visible and available to women, and more importantly, are not operating in the deal sizes that women businesses are predominantly. So the gap just grows. So we had also in, in our research that we had about 71% of women preferring to self-finance their businesses, preferring to use to use retained earnings. It is a preference for a lot of entrepreneurs. A lot of entrepreneurs bootstrap. But eventually, the men, male entrepreneurs seem to convert to more external forms of capital than women entrepreneurs do. And it's a combination of uh, social biases. It's a combination of uh, exposure. And these are all things that, that say, yet in Africa, it is the only continent where women have chosen to be more entrepreneurs than their male counterparts. It is also a continent where the entrepreneurial environment is harsher in terms of ease to do business, in terms of some of the, the, the obligations of the infrastructure and the ecosystem, yet you will find Uganda, Ghana, all of these places will have a very robust entrepreneurial system amongst African women entrepreneurs. So we're saying with those little resources and African women entrepreneurs are still managing to survive Without that targeted focus, what more can be done if that lid is unveiled and people are actually allowed to deliver? Because there's actual financing that is tailored and supportive of the African woman entrepreneur. Thank you so much for sharing that. I have a lot of thoughts,
0: um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a pretty dismal picture that you're painting, and I think even further explains why why gender lens investing is in fact now a term and a thing. Namusa, over to you.
1: So, Andrea, yeah, thank you for explaining that. I think, yeah, like it, just explaining to our listeners uh, the reality of where gender lens investing is at, but also, yeah, I can kind of, I can hear like the hope and the the opportunity there in your voice and in kind of the stats that you're citing. Um, so, yeah, I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, and then... I want to transition to like slightly more personal so that our listeners get a better sense of you. Yeah. And as a person, and then a little bit more about your background. So my question is at 30, you became the youngest female managing director of a non-family business in Kenya, which uh, is absolutely incredible and very impressive. What I would like to know is what was that professional jump like for you at the time? Um, And then if you can walk us through what some of the challenges that you faced were with making that that
2: jump yeah so I think this was like it seems like so long ago that I think um that was when I was 30 yeah so it's like 12 it was like 12 years ago so that was something that was uh where they say ignorance is bliss. I worked my way to the top of should I say fair and square where you just put your head down and get it and get it done I built a Old Mutual's East Africa a mutual fund business, from inception, uh, grew that to a hundred million dollars with a with a team. There was an excellent team, mainly comprised of, of females. And then I uh, got promoted to now to look after the institutional unit, which had uh, which was basically. A billion dollars, and the institutional unit was was very male dominated. So we were we were the retail side and then there was the institutional side. And I found myself overseeing others that uh, they were older than me. I think that that's something that we have now, but I guess when you're 30, it becomes an issue. Some of them were married, some of them were not. The fact that I was um, unmarried seemed to be an issue. I think for many of them, they had always reported to a male now, they hadn't really reported to somebody other than anyone that looked like them. So there was just a perception. Why are we reporting to her? Why are we reporting to this young person, this young female? And I, I did feel that there was, a, there was a lot of resentment and the resentment really had to do with you don't re- represent what our vision of of leadership is. It was really strange because I had a really good run when I was growing uh, that particular entity, and I had a lot of collaborative support, actually, from the institutional team. We would not have managed to achieve the kind of results that we we achieved if we hadn't worked together. And a lot of the collaborators were very strong peers of mine. And we worked to deliver fantastic results across operations, across uh, different types of investors, across uh, different types of stakeholders uh, that were coming along. And we were market pioneers, so we were also very uh, forefront when it came to the market regulator. But somehow, when the leadership, went, now I actually became in charge of of them, or they had to now report to me, those dynamics changed. And I, and I saw the dynamics change from one of mutual to collaboration to, just to put it mildly, sabotage. <laughs> it was something that I wasn't really uh, mentally prepared for. I had always sort of been like, let's just put our heads down and get the work done. And, you know, we'll work together, know who's good at what, allocate the different resources, support one another. All the things that you read about building a team and growing a team. But I hadn't necessarily understood the dynamics of prejudice or the dynamics of, of bias very well. And that, w- that only manifested itself when the authority position changed. Because as I said, these were relationships that were very cordial uh, before And to be also fair to the situation and honest with myself, I also think I wasn't really prepared for that level of, should I say, a conflict. I don't think I was experienced enough or exposed enough to know how to deal with uh, that level of conflict. And, uh, and it was almost like I was put, they, they call this position, they call it the, is it the glass cliff? If there's a very difficult problem, get a woman to solve it, you know? And I feel like it was a time when the unit had to sort of um, downsize. We were merging both the units together. We were creating one group of the investment group. The market was shifting. Our market share was not necessarily as a given as it had been in the growth years. Uh, the market was, uh, was, Slowing down, we had to employ different strategies, and it was like, yes, it's a glass cliff scenario. Let's get, let's get the hardworking woman to do it. But there really wasn't that enabling environment that actually even supported that particular success. So I remember, I remember being in that hot seat because I was at a Mutual for eight years, and uh, the the last two years was my managing director role of the investment group. Uh, previously, I was running the uh, the retail side uh, quite happily. And I, uh, you know, up till today, I have gray hair. And I always say that I got my gray hair during that time. I, I've got like a whole set of like gray hair. <laughs> there was so much I was, I was dealing with. And by the time I left, I was so exhausted. And I was so is it disappointed with myself because I took it as if I had I had failed to lead a team or I had failed to implement some level of change because I'd been used to a high level of success. Go, 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 go. And then here it was. It was a different dynamic. And uh, when I left and I went to and I went to business school. And here we are in business school again. And it's about 60 of us. There's only a third of us that are females. And it was really funny and, and healing at the same time to find women that had worked at Lehman, women that had worked at JP Morgan Stanley, all these different financial services with sort of similar, antagonistic, similar tales, similar war stories. It's like we were in the same room, but in a different place. And I could tell what they said. And that's when I realized, you know what? Prejudice or, or gender bias or, you know, all of this, it's its not an African issue. It's a global issue. And many people are not used to seeing women in leadership. And many people have to be consciously. Sometimes people think, you, you know, we say you have to do some gender gender bias training. And people say, are you sure? I'm like, yes. If you've grown up and you've only grown up in a home and maybe your mom was was the homemaker and you never saw that, if you grew up in a home where your sister was the one that was making your bed and only doing the cooking and you didn't do anything, you were told go out and hunt, why would you come to the office and show respect to a woman just because she has the title boss? I mean, I, I think these are things that we need to to see, but you only realize that it's at the very higher levels of, of leadership. Because I think at middle management level, people can get away with, oh, you just appear, we'll work together. But when it comes to like sort of implementing vision and, and talking about different ways that people can, can work together and allocating responsibility and driving accountability, it becomes tricky. Yeah so let's say it was it was a a very quick lesson in terms of identifying uh, my gender, acknowledging that it was an issue in the financial industry. Another thing I'd like to say is because there were so few women in leadership at that time, I would say one or two things, and I was actually open-minded in in talking uh, to the press whenever I could because I did feel that I was giving other women the, the permission to speak, and I was giving the industry a voice that other people could aspire to. And they could say, oh, yes, I would I would like to to join and and become an investment professional. But that also in itself was a double edged sword, because a lot of people also believed that, oh, the press is just favoring her. They always cover what she does. You just always say that. So it also caused a lot of resentment. Yet it was something that was also very positive for the brand. So it was it was a very complicated uh, scenario. I look back at it then with a smile because I think I learned a lot for a 30 year old. And it gave me the opportunity to to go to business school. It gave me the opportunity to do all the things that I've done now, because I feel like what I went through 12 years ago, uh, it's some of the challenges that people are facing in their careers now, whereas I've I've been in boardrooms since, I would say, since I was 24. And I'm like, yeah. So I'm like, being there, done that. Let's do it again. Amen.
0: I can hear, though, that it's frustrating and also very
2: isolating. So kudos to you for
0: for pushing through. And the glass cliff is definitely real. You know, there's Mary Barra at GM. There's Marissa Mayer at Yahoo. Theresa May of the UK, I think, is the most recent high-profile wow. glass cliff uh, <laughs> example. And it was actually the reason that I had hoped that the U.S. was going to have a female president in 2020. But I guess the cliff wasn't steep enough. It has to get even worse. And then yeah. maybe in 2024, it will
2: happen. <laughs> exactly. You know, it has to be burning. So it has to be like where the men don't want to touch the job, right? Then it's like, here the woman, the savior, here she comes. You know. <laughs> but, but it hasn't been that way for Angela Merkel. And I really like reading about her. And I really like, but I think there's also something to say about the enabling environment around maybe Germany and maybe the respect they have it. I I think people also need to see because you can have the most talented person. You've just mentioned very brilliant people, Marissa, uh, uh, Theresa May. And what Theresa May pushed is very, you know, let's not even talk about, you can have the most talented person, but if the enabling environment, so if the environment itself is not ready to receive that person, it still doesn't work. And I think that's what we have to change. We have to change. We don't want a perfect storm to say, now it's time for the woman. I think we have to normalize women in leadership. And one of the ways we normalize women in leadership is also by celebrating. And that's what I love so much about this environment with with COVID, because we've been celebrating traits that women have been criticized about. We've been celebrating the fact that we have empathy and what empathy can do. We've been celebrating the fact that women have been collaborating and we've been celebrating the fact that people have been listening to research, listening to data and just saying, "Okay, let's go with it. We've been celebrating the fact that women have been talking to different stakeholders, whether you're bringing children in as a different stakeholder and you're saying, yes, we're going to talk to you. And we've been celebrating the fact that we can be authentic. We can actually say we don't know. We don't have to be arrogant. We don't have to prove that we don't have to act like we know everything for people to have confidence. And I think if it wasn't for the women leaders in the public sector, that's another thing I realized. We can do as much as we can on the private sector, but the most visible people in leadership are women in the public sector. And if the women in the public sector are also not given their share, where they can demonstrate what they can do It's a domino effect across society. And we as society also have that obligation to not only want to respect women because they have a title called PM or they have a title called First Lady, but also women in the private sector or women that are leading, is it civil society organization or change making organizations that have something to bring on the table? So not making the rules that the woman has to be of a very high stature in order to get that level of respect and influence.
0: Thank you so much for that, Andy. I appreciate it. And it's true. I think of the three women I listed, two fell off the cliff and one did just fine. In fact, it took GM out of the crisis. So it is definitely about, you know, yeah, it is, I guess, how steep the cliff is and, you know, were you given ropes and good climbing shoes and all the rest of it to, to make it work? A lot of what you've just touched on leads really well to my next question, which is what advice do you have for young women entering the investment space? And is formal education or training required or can it be self-taught? We have many listeners at home who have free time. So if there's an online course you recommend, please (laughs) let people know.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, first I want to acknowledge the women that we have in our investment space. They're, They're not many, but they're there. I feel like um, with the 8% that we said we have, I think IFC did a report about women and and private equity and just the impact that they have on portfolios. And it was just demonstrating that diverse teams are better than, you know, a team that is not diverse, whether it's male or female on either side. And uh, just from that, we have been able to form a community of female investment professionals. Uh, There's a global community of investment professionals that are focused on gender lens investing. But there's another community that I think you're also a part of, Adeno, that is female investment professionals in Africa. And the ones that are are practically looking at uh, at promoting and pushing gender lens investing are sitting at about uh, 44. And as we stand now, We have only one fund, as we speak, that has received money from the 2X Challenge for gender lens investing. That's Althea Identity Capital. And then we have other funds. We have another uh, South African-based fund, Enigma Ventures, that has money from an angel investor to do some gender lens um, investing to demonstrate that that is actually happening. And we have a couple that are focused in West Africa, where they're basically bringing women entrepreneurs together and they're doing deal-by-deal investing. But uh, I mean, the, the point is that this is still ongoing. People are still fundraising. And a lot of these women, when they came for the background, the backgrounds are not necessarily, I would say, I would I would not say they may not necessarily be the traditional background where uh, you probably started out working within a private equity firm. You started out as an analyst and then from an analyst, you were able to then become an associate uh, then from an associate become some level of a director before you're going to a managing partner some of them don't necessarily have that trajectory because as we know there're not that many private equity firms that are, are working within the particular they're very limited in terms of the number of private equity uh, firms that are available. So we're finding different people. It, it, you could have come out of an accelerator or an ecosystem where you were supporting entrepreneurs with a lot of, should I say, technical assistance. You were, you got to learn aspects about what was needed for their business. You provided support, uh, whether it was supporting them to deliver some of their objectives or whether it was helping them provide linkages with particular investors so really understanding both sides um, and I think that's really what makes the best investors you you could also be an entrepreneur you could have been an entrepreneur that has uh, that has successfully started a business and either sold the business or that business even failed. You could learn a lot from failing and started out again, another business and failed. You learn a lot about operations from that point. You learn a lot about even the psyche of the entrepreneur. You could be somebody that is in corporate that has, because you've been earning a good amount of money for a while on a regular basis, you could have set out Uh, some money separately to start doing some angel investing. This is your own money that you put aside to invest in other upcoming entrepreneurs. And because of that, you have learned a few things about what makes you invest, what makes you say yes, what you would like to see in a person that you're going to back, what worked for you, what didn't work for you. And you can actually integrate those mechanisms into a formal investment process. So to me, I I would like to think that we make decisions every day about ourselves. You know, one of the key things we used to say is that you need to invest in yourself. When I decided that I was going to do an MBA in the UK, I decided to invest in myself. I said, I've I've worked my butt off. I've done loads of things. But you know what? I don't even want to jump into another role. I just want to learn and I want to absorb and I want to be in a new environment. I also choose to invest in myself when I say when I made the decision about four years ago that I was going to do yoga and I was going to do it deliberately and I was going to make that time. The time for yoga is like a meeting time. I don't, I don't mess with it. It's the time I'm doing it. I'm investing in my well-being. And in that sense, I feel like those principles, if you take them in and you're saying I'm going to look at a particular business, but this is the kind of character and this is the kind of business and this is the kind of philosophy that I want to implement. And you see what we're able to do is because we are gender lens investors and because we believe in the power of supporting the woman entrepreneur and we believe in the triple effect. It's like my business is to uplift the African woman entrepreneur because I believe through uplifting the African woman entrepreneur that that money that she gets from the business, she will hire more women. That's also a thing. Women tend to hire more women. She will also take care of. If the assumptions that I've made, she will also take care of the society. We tended we tend to see a lot of women in businesses having, should I say, social enterprises alongside their business. Or well, Whether it is, I am a tailor, but I'm using, I mean, I, I am a designer and I'm using tailors that are both uh, deaf and dumb. Or oh, I am sourcing my product from this very vulnerable community that is making some of the jewelry and beads. Or oh, it is from this area that I'm getting this share button. This is what, how it supports. Very aware of the social context without even being told that it's not even a PR play. Because it it's not it doesn't appear it comes after several questioning the trickle down economics so you you get to develop a thesis based on your values uh, but that only happens if you choose to be and grow into a managing partner role so oh, to me I would say that there are lots of women that that start out in the financial sector but somehow we lose really good talent along the way. And sometimes because I've met some of these women and I've also experienced it, it's because of the toxic uh, culture or the work or the work culture that does not support a work-life balance. But guess what? Again, we have COVID and COVID has reset the world. And many people, when we talk about the new normal, will not be going back to the rat race. And I think it is up to us to really drive that balance to make sure that whereas we are giving ourselves to a particular role, it doesn't mean that we are sacrificing ideals that we care about, whether it is the ability to have a family, whether it is the ability to have that supportive environment to keep a family and to grow a family. So let's not look at leadership as a punishment or something that we shouldn't do because we have to choose. And that's my advice for women in the investment uh, uh, space. Go further, push further so that you transcend from the investment manager to the managing partner, but be hungry for it and want it. And if the table does not want you, if you're in an environment that is toxic, you'll just be like Andrea. You will create your own table, and you'll create your own environment, and you will thrive, and you'll succeed in it. I love that creating your own table. Um, I
1: my kind of next question is connected to creating your own table and just advice for our listeners. Um, What would you say is like the most important soft skill in your industry? I know that you had said that a lot of your industry is relational or relationship based. So, yeah, what would be one of the most important soft skills? And just to give context to our listeners, like being good at spreadsheets would be like a hard skill.
2: Yeah. So I think the investment industry has got multiple stakeholder management and by stakeholders, I'll talk about two facets of it. I'll talk about the fundraising aspect and I'll, and I'll talk about the deal sourcing aspect. So then we just stick in the middle and maybe we even talk about the portfolio management. I think relationship building is one of the, the most, I would say, the most uh, important uh, soft skill in the investment industry, and I think you can be the the numbers nerd. You can fill out the valuations, but you know what? You're not even going to get there. You're not even going to get to do that. You're not even going to get to do the models if you can't even source the right deals. And the the deals don't come in a silver platter. They don't come because you know uh, somebody that's working at an investment bank and they're already working on the deals. They don't come simply because you are part. You're in a WhatsApp group and you realize you're in the WhatsApp group. And one of the ladies there is the big, is it Coco or the, or the big media mogul? And that doesn't mean because of that, that that is actually going to be a quality deal or that person is even going to want to engage with you or that person is even going to want to trust you enough to work with you. So, and and this is a scenario where it doesn't matter even if one of the key things I would like to say about entrepreneurs, and and, and I, I will continue to encourage this amongst the entrepreneur community where entrepreneurs are not lucky because investors choose them. Entrepreneurs also have the opportunity to choose who they want to work with. Remember, you're dealing with women that have deliberately self-excluded themselves from the financial system, meaning that they have a very high propensity to save, meaning that they are eligible for loans, but they don't take their hand. And part of it has been that, well, we don't have that uh, contract. We don't have that uh, relationship management. It's purely transactional. And uh, it it assumes that I will always have a certain number of cash flows and I'm I'm not sure about that. So the ability to even build trust, the ability to build some level of um, engagement where people begin to exchange information whether you've signed an NDA or not, where they're able to tell you about your business, they're able to demonstrate how far they've gone, and they're able for people to walk together on a journey. An investment, an investor is a partner where you say, "Well, we're going to go together, we're going to move together, and we are going to grow the business together." That's a very personal uh, a choice, and we've had instances, unfortunately, where. Some businesses have been made to look like they are simply objects of generating excessive return. They are also simply objects of just delivering returns without the necessary support. In fact, if you look at the investment community now, a lot of them are focused on their portfolio companies and they'll say to you, oh, I have to make sure that my portfolio company is going to survive this particular period. So it is not a passive arrangement. And it really helps if there is a cordial relationship. And when I say cordial, I don't mean best friends, baking cookies. I mean, mutual respect for one another. And, and that's the same way when it's portfolio management is being engaged, when you're looking at the business and you're driving, you're driving particular returns and objectives and you're working together, really. And, you know, fundraising, there's so many different funders. I think fundraising is really one of the most, should I say, exhausting and difficult parts of, of the process. And it never really stops because you're always a fundraising, you're dealing with a variety of stakeholders with different objectives. And in our case, where you're looking to do a blended finance vehicle, which has a combination of both commercial investors and a philanthropic capital, then you you speak to a number of different different players. Really, taking them through the journey of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And knowing that you have envisioned what might happen, but what might happen might be really different from what will actually happen. But again, you're inviting people to go on the journey with you. So in that sense, there's also a high level of uh, interaction, a high level of trust building, a high level of likability, uh, which means you have to have really authentic and genuine rapport with people. And that might not happen if you are not strong at engaging or if you don't feel courageous enough to reach out in and, and strike a conversation with somebody that you think uh, may help you. If you're also not willing uh, and uh, humble enough, if you're not willing to listen to the different types of criticism that might come from people who maybe want you to tweak or adjust a little bit before they can invest. And you have to make a call. You also have to be independent-minded enough to say, I'm hearing all these voices, but what actually makes sense to what I need to do? Uh, Maybe actually, no, thank you. I am not going to take that. So I I think it needs a, a very strong character, but I think ultimately the character has to have a lot of integrity. The character has to be very authentic and the character has to naturally be able to build relationships that inspire trust amongst the people that they're interacting with. So no hidden agendas, basically. Thanks for
1: that, India. That's
2: really helpful to, because I think a lot of time, yeah, is spent
1: focused on like what school, like what kind of, yeah, academic background do you have to have? What kind of work background do you have to have? But so much of, as you rightly explained, how business is done is relational. And so, yeah, no hidden agendas. I like that.
0: All right. And so looking forward, you know, as we, you know, there's a lot going on right now and it is potentially a time or it is the time to reimagine what things can look like and what we want them to look like. And so we will conclude with the following question. What does a new normal for the investment sector in Africa look like? And what do you want to manifest in this space by this time next year?
2: Yeah, great. So to me, the new normal is that I think we're going to do more early stage investing. And that really excites me. I think one of the biggest uh, peeves was that everybody was, uh, not everybody, but the market generally was was looking for the really big deal sizes. You know, people weren't going to get out of bed for a deal uh less than $10 million, in some cases, five, if you're lucky. But, That's like you know, the no, Naomi
0: Campbell of uh investment because didn't she say like i won't wake
2: up for 10 unless
0: it's like dollars?
2: <laughs> yeah no i've met so many people that have been like oh i can't i can't believe you're doing that deal size no uh, oh no but you're like that's where the market is that's where the i think because we are in a scenario that many businesses are now either going to have to pivot or they're either going to innovate in terms of taking advantage of those opportunities. The only way that that will be able to happen is if they actually get some catalytic capital to support that process. And that catalytic capital is not only going to be in the tech. I think the tech world has been very um, supportive in terms of, you know, being able to get and see things early enough and say, you know what, We're going to back it on the tech side. But the other other sectors have been very slow to adopt that because we are acknowledging that we are fundamentally in a world that is going to be relying more heavily on some form of virtual interaction or various sort of low touch ways to do things. I think there's going to be a lot of a lot more flexibility. On on the deal sizes and and I think there's going to be very interesting opportunities for those businesses that can demonstrate that they can pivot uh, successfully and demonstrate that they can also innovate. So you can have a startup within an existing business to take advantage of this opportunity, or you can have a pure startup. I also think that uh, we as the investment industry, it's something that and even the banking sector and I'm working with we're doing a technical assistance program now with Absa Kenya just to support their small and medium enterprise banks i think banks are beginning to value more the technical assistance aspect what i call blended finance so normally when you invest there are there is the deployment capital But there's also different capital that you call technical assistance. And this capital is used to support the portfolio companies to achieve the objectives. So that is sort of post-investment technical assistance. But there's also an appreciation that you need to build the market and you need to create the market and you need to uh, create the chain that is going to feed you and the more you create it, the more quality you are assured of what you invest. So, you know, sometimes you hear it, what, what do they call it in, in business? I think they can call it backward integration, where I'm McDonald's, I want my fries a certain way. So I make sure I know who's doing my potatoes. It's it's just really as simple as that, where the, the technical assistance process, the the pre-investment process is going to receive a lot more attention because of the quality that needs to be associated with the actual investing process. And in that sense, I think there's going to be a lot more blended finance initiatives and collaboration in those particular areas. I also think because travel has been restricted, that uh, there's going to be finally, finally, collaboration with local actors, people that are rooted on the ground. The people that know the businesses, even before they appeared in the paper and they caught your eye, the people that understand how to do due diligence that goes beyond what is given on paper. These are things that have got to do with sort of informal reference checks, things that we call kick the tire, where you can actually look at a business and, uh, be able to act from the business it's not like a what is it a beauty parade where you know an investor is coming so you put on your sunday best and your business is all right and you you show the best things possible because the investor's in town that week but if somebody's local the beauty parade is every day It's really based on what you're doing. They may not be seeing you every day, but there's certain activities that you're engaging. And I I think we will see a bigger reliance on local actors, which means that the trust between investors that are based outside of the country and people that are working inside, hopefully that that relationship will have one of more, should I say, more mutual shared collaboration, mutual sort of power and references so that possibly we can get more local founders to get invested. Because now it won't be only a function of the networks of where the people who went to school and where they live and who they know. It'll be a variety of people Which means that we might be also able to break barriers such as socioeconomic status and celebrating entrepreneurs that have come from the slums or are doing are doing products for the communities that they live in because they understand them better. I also pray that we will have more female fund managers. We have them. And when I say more, and one of one of the ways to get more female fund managers is to Get the ones that are already there, the ones that I talked about. We've got Evening Dior from WIC Capital, uh, which targets sort of small and growing businesses in Senegal and Côte d'Ivoire, open-ended. Let's get more people funded. You know, we have Edesua from Nigeria, really being a gender-lens fund intentionally really investing in businesses that employ women in their workforce or value chain, getting these names to be more household names so it doesn't look like the female investing environment is really one or two people. We have Lisa Thomas of Samantha Capital who has very strong emerging market experience. And with only machine, let's get more people. And the reason why we say we get more emerging female fund managers is because we've just recognized that we're going to have more flexible work environments. So working from home is going to be a little bit of the norm. I know there's an issue with home care. There's an issue with unpaid work and what we do with kids. But ideally, this is something that has kept a lot of women out of the workforce. When we did our study as part of New Faces and we were looking at... Uh, Equilib, and we were looking at the gender composition of the workforce. A company like Standard Chartered came out atops, And a lot of it had to do with their flexible work arrangement. They acknowledged the flexibility women had were needed when they had children. And to me, if the whole world goes into a flexible mode, then I think there are several women that are sitting in existing firms right now or existing businesses that can say, you know what, I think I can do better and I can do faster if I'm on my own with a smaller team. So I want to see the emergence of more female uh, fund managers. And I think the last is we have just sort of been thrust into technology. I mean, if it wasn't for all the networks in my life, every time I think every week I learn of a new platform. So if it wasn't for you, Namus and Adana, I wouldn't know about Swadcast. So (laughs) I feel like I keep getting pushed into different platforms every week. I'm using something that I've never used before. I did an I did a mentoring session. Last week, a leadership walk with the 30% club and I was put and I said, how is it going to happen? It's virtual mentorship. I was put in this sort of system I've never looked before, but it's true. I mentored people from across Africa using this virtual system. So I'm also learning the tools just because also the the people around me are being very, uh, they're very savvy. So it's not just about, hey, let's do Zoom. Let's do Skype there's all sorts of interesting different ways that I'm learning that I wouldn't have learned before. So now I'm thinking and I'm trying to think because, you know, it's like you you think you're operating in a non-familiar environment, but I keep saying there must be a way we can do this virtually. There must be a way we can build. So one thing we're trying to do is like, how do we have a, how do we do a networking virtually? You know, that. uh, how do you get people to say, hi, how are you? Like you would do if you went to a little cocktail and you got to meet people with the conferences. How do you build that trust over virtually? And all those things are going to happen. And, you know, we're going to come up with scenarios, but I'm just so happy to be in this scenario where it's learning things that I probably wouldn't have known, but now know because the tech savviness of the people around me. Happy to provide unintended uh, resources.
0: <laughs> I, act, I mean, I was also put on to Squadcast through a work conversation, actually. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. Really quickly, before this next segment, I did want to do a correction. It's not Naomi Campbell. It's actually Namusa's fellow Canadian, Linda Evangelista, who said, Ah! Uh- <laughs> we, we don't wake up for less than ten thousand dollars a day. <laughs> yeah, the supermodels. Oh gosh. You know what? Let that be my mantra. I don't know how that's going to work. I guess I wouldn't wake up for the near future. But <laughs> we can aspire. Noosa, do you have any follow-up questions to that last point? Uh, no,
1: I'm ready to get into the the next segment.
0: Okay. So, Andrea, this is a little bit of a surprise. Surprise. Uh, But we have a by force or by fire segment where Namusa and myself ask our guests either or questions. They're very painless. You don't have to do any deep thinking. Um, It's effectively a would you rather this A or would would you rather thing A or thing B? Um, And if you'd like to give insight into why you chose that, great. If you don't want to, that's not a problem. Okay. Okay. All right. So the first one, quintessential Nairobi dining experience question: still or sparkling? Yeah. Still. <laughs> yes. Sorry, Namusa and I also kind of take points. It's, it's become competitive over the last few years. It wasn't. It wasn't competitive until this season. <laughs> Let's uh, see how many, how many, how many guesses we can match with our guests. But anyway, I'm one for one for one right now. But who's counting, Namusa?
1: Okay, India. I think uh, I might be able to get a point here. Red or white? Can I say rosé? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Next one, formal or casual?
2: Casual.
1: Okay, next one. And I'm I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but let's see. Um, (laughs) SMEs or corporations?
2: SMEs.
1: Yeah, okay. I knew that that would be your answer. So (laughs) we're also in alignment on that one. Um, But Addie, I think you might too also be in that alignment too. So a point for everybody.
0: Yeah, admittedly, this is a. I don't want to say it's an anti-capitalist podcast, but,
1: <laughs> but we do We're root down with imperialism.
0: But we do root for we do root for the underdog. <laughs> uh, next up, vinyasa or hot yoga?
2: Oh, hot yoga.
1: Okay. And the final one, um, dancing or singing?
2: Uh, I have to tell you, it's singing really I a feeling i, I somehow guessed that can you say yeah. more on that like why singing oh because i just um i i love to sing but i don't have like a sing voice i just have like a high voice but um i'm a singer uh i i love to sing but uh and yeah i was never the dancer i was always uh, laughed at by my cousin that i had the uh, should I say the, what do I say? I, I'm to, trying to be, left left to be What, what? Two left feet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's what I tried, but I'm just more well, like a singer. I love, I love singing along to my favorite songs and just singing it in full blast. And, uh, but, yes. but, yeah. And, and who here. knows, maybe
1: that's the next step of your career. <laughs>
0: So Andy, I'm going to ask you what do you, what song? What's your top five or like? Ah, eh, we'll say your top three songs that you belt out and when you sing like no one is watching. Because I definitely spent most of this afternoon singing Broadway hits while working. So,
2: oh, Broadway solid. hits, okay. Solidarity. So I really love Celine Dion, Immortal, Immortality. Yes. yes, that is like woohoo! I yeah. love, yeah. I love. I love yeah 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 I love Whitney Houston. My love is Yola solid. Um just a good one. I'm trying to see which one that I should put as like third one as when I'm belting, belting, belting as um um what is it? Um all do you remember all cried out? Oh yes. Who who sang that? Allure allure oh, and 112. Okay, can we get you to
1: just maybe hum a little
2: bit for the podcast? <laughs> no, but it's, and I'm all cried out. Oh, you can that's, sing. That's, 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 you the also, the only, that's the only
0: part that I know. Well, <laughs> also, right? I said, that's also the only part that I know.
2: The second yeah, you said yeah. that song, I was like, oh yeah, I'm all cried out. And then I don't know anything else. No, it's a, it's a really strong song. Um it's it's great. Yeah, but I have so many fa- favorites. I have Sinead O'Connor, uh, Nothing Compares to You." Oh, I just have these classics so that I'm like uh if they come to I love Adele's "Hello." That's like one of my favorites. Um I love Tiffany, I think we're low now. Anyway. I yes. Wow, that's a deep cut. Okay. Well, not a yeah, deep cut. Yeah. Deep. But like an 80s, like
0: you have to really know your like Debbie Gibson, Tiffany phase, yeah, like in I order like to know song that song. That
2: I can yeah. sing along to if you have a song and I can't sing along that I don't enjoy it as much. That's,
0: I think, why they said that Mariah Carey was going to have a hard time when she was first starting out, because her songs are very well, some of them actually no who am i kidding most of them are, you, are really hard to sing along to
2: um like mariah I'm, I'm trying to think i like what she did when she did miracle with uh with with whitney it's uh it's fine i can i can try with i can try do miracle her duets and when she did um one sweet sweet day with uh boys to men uh i can i can manage that and um uh, and there's without you, I can manage that. But it's it's a bit tough. Also, for anybody who doesn't know Celine Dion, Immortality,
0: that means you do not own the Let's Talk About Love album, which came out in the late 90s, which also means you did not grow up with African parents who played that CD all day, every day when you were driving or you were in the house or forced you to perform the Paparazzi Celine Dion duet for your aunts and uncles when they came over by yourself. Both parts. So I'm just saying that song, when you said it, I knew it very intimately
2: (laughs) (laughs) because that album album. was a huge part of my childhood i love it i love it so yeah so uh, these are all songs that i have to sing with uh, the person in the background the person has to i mean the celine has to be you know there but yeah another of canada's
1: gifts with lamusa the gift that keeps on giving but i I will say the african i have been to many places on the african continent and there i have yet to be to a place that doesn't rep Celine Dion in the ah! most urban areas or rural areas Celine has found a way to speak to people across the continent.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Love her. My mother love, love loves. We have all her albums. I don't think you understand. All her CDs are in the like glove compartment of the family car. It is always on rotation and it's across generations because I have a young Ghanaian guy who is a friend of mine also loves Celine Dion. Anyway, we could—that could be—that should actually be a podcast guest. She could get a hall pass for not being African or diaspora. I feel like she has contributed enough to the culture <laughs> where maybe she, we could be—we could interview her and it'd be okay. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you so much, Andrea, for joining us. Really appreciate you giving us some of your time. Um, and also, how can our listeners find you and your work?
2: Um, yeah, I think the easiest place to find me is just the contact session on my website. My website is www.andyechakava.com. I'm also on Twitter at achakava. You can hit me a message there. And then I'm on LinkedIn. But LinkedIn, I have to be honest, I'm not very good at the LinkedIn messages. They're just many. But a Twitter message and a website message is fine. All right. Well, thank you again. Much appreciated. Well thank you for this. I found the questions fun and engaging. Um I hope um yeah, I hope it, it it'll be helpful to all your listeners. And thank you so much for asking me to come on and talking about gender lens investing and my message is, you know, to to the investment community is uh, let's get behind the African women entrepreneurs and my message to individuals out there is uh, investing is something that you can do and try. It's not just for an elite group of people. And to African women entrepreneurs, keep kicking ass. We're coming for you. You're here, here. Thanks yes. so much, India. We really appreciate you taking the time. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hey, listeners. Hi, listeners.
1: Want to make the podcast bigger and better? Let your fave girl children and the world know exactly how you feel. Please rate the Africana podcast and comment on Apple Podcasts. We're grateful for all of your support.
0: And if you're a disgruntled ex, please do not use this as an opportunity to vent your frustrations. And to everyone else, thank you so, so much in advance.